Welcome to Episode 9 of the Pilot's Journey Podcast. My name is Stuart Stevenson, a.k.a. Pilot Stu, a private pilot in North Dallas. And my name is Stuart Stoll, a.k.a. CFI Stu, a certified flight instructor near Fort Worth, Texas. Our guest this episode is Mike Hart from Idaho Falls, Idaho. He is a businessman, a writer, and a recent aircraft owner. Welcome, Mike. Hey, Stu. Thanks for the invitation. I, I appreciate uh we were kind of pen pals when I was shopping. I, uh, I'm glad uh, you followed up and uh, asked me on. Well, you completed a dream that I've always had, and that's the aircraft ownership. I'm still kind of in that uh, that stage where I really, really want to find an excuse to buy a plane. <laughs> you know, I think you need to commit to that excuse. Rationalization is a good thing. In <laughs> fact, I'll definitely say that uh, uh, after when I purchased the plane, I really did feel like I was rationalizing. Uh, and coming up with all kinds of excuses to do it. Uh, and then um, when I bought it, uh, I ended up getting a couple contracts that were far enough away where I would say the dominant usage I've had of that plane has been professional now. And as in fact, it's a, it's a great thing because uh, having a plane enables me to uh, uh, serve a contract that, geez, it would be a nine-hour drive. Uh, to go meet with that customer, and uh, it's a three-hour flight, and it goes over some beautiful wilderness, and uh, my office is at the hangar on the other end. And so, I mean, the plane actually has enabled a huge amount of business. I mean, a lot of things happened in a positive way for my business because I own a plane. So, and that was not among my excuses for buying it, actually, but uh, it has definitely contributed to me uh, enjoying its use. Why don't we go back to where you started and uh, and first started that rationalization process, and, and how did you decide, A, what kind of plane to buy, and B, how to approach it and actually complete the purchase? Yeah, you know, that was – it It took it, – there were several phases of, uh, of shopping for planes. I think early on, uh, I uh, – two years – a couple of years, not the last Sun and Fun, but the previous Sun and Fun, uh, I – Went there, and uh, it was the first uh, event like that I'd ever been to. Now, Florida is a long ways from um, from Idaho, but uh, had had reasons I, 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 to go there. So I uh, checked out Sun and Fun, and, and when I was there, I, I fell in love with the, the LSA category. I, I actually never even looked at LSAs or thought even twice about them because I already had my private pilot ticket. So it's like, why would I be interested in, in a plane that isn't certified? And then when I actually saw them, it's like, I know exactly why I would be interested in one of those. They're, they're amazing. Uh, so anyway, I got, uh, I, I test flew a Lombada, which is a, a motor glider, essentially a hundred horsepower, uh, engine up front, Rotax. Uh, and I also looked at, um, so I, 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 uh, really got serious about the flight design, uh, all the way to the point of getting financing on it. I arranged to, uh, with the local school here in Idaho. Uh, to do a lease back, uh, and I started running the numbers of, you know, what if, because my theory was, look, if I put a, the fleet of, of planes at the local FBO, uh, and school, we're all old, older planes. And I thought, boy, if I put something out there on the flight line that has a glass cockpit, uh, a, you know, just sips gas, uh, you know, there's, there's some money to be made or at least, uh, an excuse to have a plane that I could own. And then put it in the fleet there. So anyway, that was my original decision. I'm going to do that and make a somewhat of a business proposition of it. And really, after I ran the numbers, it wasn't as good as I wanted it to be. 
particularly when I found the mistake in my spreadsheet <laughs> as to what I needed to charge and how many hours it needed to run. Uh, insurance was an issue in terms of since I'm not a flight school, the insurance rates for me as an individual um, were a little bit worse than what I wanted them to be, particularly putting it on a flight line. So anyway, that was really the beginning of the shopping experience. But at that point, I was committed. I had approved financing for that aircraft. And at, at that point, it was hard to shake the bug. Uh, you know, I was already shopping and I, I, uh, pre, was pretty close to closing on an airplane. But, uh, again, the finding my little error on my spreadsheet. And then my wife started saying, you know, Mike, I think the economy is going to go south here pretty soon. I, I'm, and my wife is very, very smart and prescient. And, um, uh, wife approval is obviously an important factor in purchasing an airplane if, if one is wed. Uh, <laughs> or wishes to stay that way. <laughs> or wishes to stay that way, exactly. And, uh, and she actually was supporting me and would trust me. And one of the, one of the things that, uh, I actually maybe support and trust isn't so much as knows that once I've set my mind to something, I'm going to do it no matter what anyway. So she's <laughs> that learned that that's my character. But, uh, anyway, she started, you know, really asking me some questions about the economy. And I started looking. And and the timing actually worked out well because I bailed out and chose not to go, and then everything went belly up on the in the economy. But at the same time, uh, I'd already already had the bug, so I was still looking for planes. Uh, so after the flight design, I actually started looking more for planes that really suited my mission personally, rather than going on a leaseback type arrangement. And uh, when I did some, a mountain flying seminar, one of the things I took away from that, from a, and it was taken, I took it at Chalice, Idaho, with uh, Pete Nelson at Middle Fork Aviation, and uh, Pete said, you know, the, a 182 is just a great plane for the backcountry, or in general, all all around airplane for somebody flying in this neck of the woods, because uh, it has good backcountry performance, it has uh, a good useful load, so you can actually carry four people in it. Uh, it goes pretty fast and in general, it's just a good utility airplane. So I really started thinking about those, although I still was really enamored with Cardinals as well. Uh, I think I liked the speed of the Cardinal RGs and, uh, and even the, uh, even a straight leg Cardinal. I, I had a lot of, uh, attraction to those, although they really aren't a good, uh, backcountry plane for, for bush flying. So anyway, I um, again, I think I already had already swallowed the idea that I am buying an airplane. And then it was just a matter of shopping and, and trying to find the right one. And uh, that process took quite a few, uh, quite, quite a bit of time. I, uh, part of it was looking at partnerships. I ended up finding uh, pulling, pooling together five guys who were all willing to drop, you know, to commit to throwing 3000 into a pot to. Uh, for, you know, to start the, to start a club, if you will, or start a joint ownership. And, and we came, we were ready on a Cardinal actually that, uh, we, uh, made an offer, but there was a guy in front of us and that plane was, a, we'd shopped enough that we really knew what was a good deal. And that plane was a good deal, but the guy who had, uh, done a pre-buy ahead of us also realized it. And when we said, well, we'll take it. Uh, he was one one in line in front of us, and so we missed out. Uh, so again, that just every time you miss a plane, and, and I missed several, in fact, uh, because I, I think I I did a lot of homework. 
I spent an awful lot of time on the websites looking at the planes I was interested in and comparing the ones that were out on the market and, uh, you know, performance and characteristic, you know, the kind of the the ratio of the what the plane had to offer versus the asking price. So I knew what a bargain was and I knew when an owner was a little too proud of a plane. So when I saw a deal, I would jump on it and boy, I was not as fast at jumping as other people because there were several really good planes that I made offers on that, that fell off the market before I got to them. So, so anyway, the final moment, uh, ended up just me and one other guy, uh, were really still sticking it out in terms of, uh, and that's my, my current co-owner, Roger, uh, we're really still really in the mix. And, um, we had looked at several, we had actually came really close to a plane that was local. Uh, but I, I paid for a pre-buy inspection and, uh, it turned out the dealer was really pretty crooked. He rep, how he represented the plane was not at all what you saw in the log books. Uh, first, the engine was rebuilt last year when I, when I first started inquiring about the plane. Then, uh, when my mechanic called him, oh, it was rebuilt five years ago. Uh, and then when <laughs> we got, then when we got down there and looked in the log books, it was, uh, rebuilt 12 years ago. And, uh, you know, TBO on an engine uh, includes hours, you know, on a on a, a 182, which is what we were looking at. The TBO on the 0470 was 1,500 hours or 12 years, according to uh, uh, the engine manufacturer. So it's actually technically out of TBO. Uh, now, when you're not flying charter, you, that doesn't matter, except there's a reason why they have those numbers. and. Uh, so anyway, I, I made an offer, even, even with the, the misrepresentation and the guy I really couldn't trust. And, and we actually found a crack in the, the tail section in the bulkhead on the tail that, uh, my mechanic said, this is a classic crack. You know, we, first thing we're going to do is remove that tail cone and look for it because most Cessnas of that vintage have it. And if, if, if they don't have it, there's two different fixes. There's a good fix and there's a bad fix. So it'll either have the crack. It'll have the crack with a good fix or it'll have the crack with the bad fix. And uh, he pulled the tail cone off and was setting it to the side. And I rubbed my finger along the, the bulkhead. And it's like, is this the crack you're looking for? And he was like, yep, that's it. We went to the logs and it had been signed off as inspected and fine. <laughs> uh, and that was in December. Oops. And we were looking at the plane in February. And something tells me that crack did not appear while the plane was on the ground, not flying between December and February. So anyway, uh, you know, I actually still made an offer on the plane. Um, it was a low ball offer because I took what the expense would be to fix that plane and looked at, you know, basically just don't the guy who's selling it, just ignore him and look at the plane for what it is. And, uh, you know, it, it the engine being that old and, and having not flown, uh, you know, Pete, my mechanic said, you know, you, it's 50-50. You know, you could get a full TBO out of that engine or it could start coughing in 400 hours or 200 hours or 800 hours uh, and start burning oil. He said it, it's, it's just a crapshoot. And uh, so, you know, make your offer accordingly. And so I did. And the guy turned it down. And, and I thank the gods that uh, <laughs> that he turned it down because the next probably later that same week, I worked a late night uh, here in my office. I was up till two in the morning. I needed to wind down. So I went to barnstormers and looked at planes, new planes that might show up. And 
dang, there was one that was listed at 10 p.m. And I looked at what its specs were and the asking price, and I, I thought, this is an amazing deal. This is an amazing plane. Uh, and at six more, six in the morning the next morning, I called the, the, the broker who had it listed, and uh, I, I think I spent the rest of the morning talking to the mechanic, uh, the previous owner, and uh, I think by 4 p.m. that day, I had wired 5,000 to hold the airplane. So and and that that plane is the one I end up owning and it's it's I'm I'm still pleased with it. Now that's got to take a lot of guts to do that on basically the word of a couple of people over the phone. You know, um, I think it was really good to have the experience with the guy who was as crooked as a dog's leg because I was very skeptical of anything that somebody told me. I really had to ask, well, you know, get it from another source. And one of the things that was a telltale sign of the first plane, again, I'll call let's call it the bad plane uh, or the bad, bad seller. Um, he wouldn't, didn't want me to call the owner. He was like, oh, no, no, I'm selling it for him. He doesn't want to talk to people. Well, right there is a warning flag, I think. Uh, if you can't talk to the guy who was the previous owner, uh, it's kind of hard to establish provenance and what the airplane did and how it flew and what, you know, what kind of mission, you know, how was it used, how many hours. helps you triangulate to be able to talk to multiple people who have experience with the plane. So the fact that uh, the fir- that guy wouldn't let me talk to the owner, I think, uh, in hindsight, definitely is a warning sign. The the plane that I ended up buying, he's like, here's the here's the ferry pilot's phone number. Here's the mechanic who did all the work on it. Here's the owner's phone number. Uh, yeah, call him. Please do. And, you know, on the one plane, I actually, you know, I paid for a pre-buy inspection. On this one, looking at the numbers, it's like this plane is going to move. And I'd had, there, like I said, there were several planes that were priced to sell. And, uh, boy, if you don't make an offer on a really good plane uh, quickly, the really good ones that are priced at the at, to sell uh, tend to move very quickly, or at least they did uh, when I was in the in the market. And so I felt like I really I had a, enough experience having had great planes stolen underneath me, so to speak, as well as a plane that was a decent deal, but uh, boy, it required a lot of work and you ha- could have to discount the guy who was selling it. So anyway, I spent a lot of time on the phone uh, pretty much the entire day talking to the mechanic and then calling him back and asking more questions and asking more questions. And things started checking out. Basically, you know, when you triangulate different people's stories, uh, eventually, you know, the lies start emerging or uh, people who haven't clearly colluded and talked to each other. Hey, we're going to say this about the plane. Start saying the same things. Uh, and if you ask a deep enough level of questions, and I had my uh, mechanic call and ask, um, you know, I think I, at the end I really did feel comfortable. Uh, but, yeah, I felt comfortable, but I also felt a little exposed until I picked up the plane. You know, it's one of those things where it was. It's kind of you're holding some cards and you move all in. And <laughs> and I, I moved all in, and, and it's like, okay, let's see what you got. And in fact, in some respects, I'm still there. The plane has performed outstandingly, but uh, right now, uh, the annual when we bought it ran ran out in October. So uh, I took it to my mechanic. Uh, in fact, that's what I was doing this weekend. So it is currently undergoing a very, very thorough annual 
Uh, and this will be the first annual we pay for. And therefore, you know, you've got to always question the annual inspection that was done by a person who's trying to put the plane on the market. You know, if you're trying to sell the plane, your willingness to do go above and beyond and make sure that every little thing is fixed is different uh, than when you're on the other side of that equation, when you're picking up a new plane. So I'm, I'm now at the stage of the annual inspection is like, just be thorough. Tell me everything I want to know. Well, did you have any caveats or um, you know, subject twos on your, when you wired the deposit on the plane? Um. Yeah, there were. I'd have to go back to the the agreement, uh, but I do think it was uh, there was a subject to the plane being in the condition it was represented, uh, both in the advertisement and uh, uh, and in discussions. Uh, you know, so obviously, if it's if they said the logbook has well, a, a classic example going back to the earlier bad experience. You know, in, in the when the guy said, hey, the engine was just rebuilt, it only has 20 hours on it. And it was like, yeah, 20 hours from 12 years ago. Uh, it's still in mineral oil. Well, he had to re, he had just redone it. He did a, a top uh, on the, the plane. So it had been, the top had been redone 20 hours ago, but the bottom was done 12 years ago. You know, so it was, there are a lot of things that you can, you know, when you look at what's in the advertisement uh, or, or how the plane's represented and then a conditional clause that says, uh, you know, this offer is good as long as the plane is what it, as it was represented. And in the case of the one that I looked at locally, it clearly was not. Um, and so it would have been an easy escape clause. And in the same case with this one, it, you know, it had uh, had very, some of the same uh Characteristics. In fact, uh, the engine was freshly overhauled. It was still in mineral oil when we picked it up. In fact, the the I mean that was in the article actually. The 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 before we picked it up, the last thing one of the things that happened was it was still he was draining out the mineral oil and uh, was putting in the new new fresh oil and then cracking open the uh, oil filter and showing us what it looked like uh, and you know that. Uh, clearly helped us help you know it's like looking at the engine it's like oh yeah it's obvious it's new and again meeting meeting the mechanic seeing the plane in the shop that it was worked on uh there were a lot of things that once we were there to do to pick up the plane started checking out and checking out positively so again we went all all in and then as the cards were turning it was looking like we were a winner and, and like i said at the end of the day i think we were there i've like i said every We've done two oil changes now on it, and um, and the plane is is just uh, it flies. It, it, I get 140 knots true out of it, and uh, it it behaves exactly like it ha- it should uh, with with no squawks really. I, I I say no squawks. We actually on uh, I, the spinner had a crack in it. Uh, it wasn't there when we bought it, uh, but it appeared. Uh, and during a pre-flight, we noticed it and, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing you don't want shredding in flight. So that was, that was our first, uh, contribution of one aviation maintenance unit. <laughs> a, a, a 182 spinner is 900 bucks. From personal experience, I would have to say that that's a very bad thing to happen in flight. <laughs> you, you've had a spinner shed, shred? I've had a spinner, I've had a spinner shred on me and a, um, in a duchess, uh, nose cone came off in my twin. 
And then uh, just recently, uh, this didn't happen to me, but I witnessed it. Uh, a friend of mine was taking off and um, the nose cone shredded due to the propeller coming off actually on takeoff. Yeah, we don't know where it went, but it was a loud bang and ouch. Uh, yeah, think- there was some there's some kind of stress fracture in the prop, but it wound up de- totaling that engine right about 50 feet off the runway. You know, I think that's the one uh of all the things I would live in fear or not live in fear of, but of all the things I I would dread, it would be a prop uh a prop separation of any kind. Because of that imbalance, you know, spinning at that many RPMs out of balance. Uh, my understanding from reading stories and talking to people uh, who've had the experience or known people who've had the experience is it's just uh, it's horrible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's no other way. I mean, terrifying, uh, hard to keep your composure because the plane feels like it's that the engine's going to f- completely tear itself out of the the firewall <laughs> and fall to the ground. Uh, it just yeah, that's exactly what it feels like. It just <laughs> See, you confirm that's my phobia. Oh, yeah. It it makes me, because I do a lot of backcountry flying and I'm flying on these runways with rocks, uh, and you you fly very differently when you have, when you're spitting rocks up. And uh, our prop is still pretty virginal, uh, fortunately. Uh, But boy, every every pre flight, I'm always looking at that prop for Nick's. And that was, when I rented airplanes, I always, looking at the prop for Nick's was always, I think built out of that paranoia, or maybe it's not paranoia because it's a low probability event. But if that event occurs, <laughs> uh, memorable in a way you don't want. Right, exactly. I've been very fortunate that all my all the emergencies I've had have been in and around the airport environment. But what, what other emergencies? That one sounds pretty horrifying. <laughs> oh, there's so many to name, really. You know. <laughs> Because being a flight instructor and just flying, when you fly every day of the week, stuff is just bound to happen. I've had uh, fuel tanks break. Of, um, uh, I, I actually landed with one one gallon of fuel once. I think. Oh, you know, I I I had something. Not, it wasn't one gallon, and I think uh, you know this is you know confession time, but uh, I. Uh, did a flight plan. I was flying a friend uh, to uh, Van Nuys, actually. And it was before I even realized Van Nuys was such a storied airport. In fact, we landed one six right. And I didn't even know that had any significance, <laughs> but uh, we flew there and I had flight planned the whole thing and, and done the numbers and we flew or, or when I flight planned, it was like, it's five hours. So we need one fuel stop. We'll be good. And I picked the fuel stop that was conservative and, and life was good. Well, the way we flew the, pl- the that mission, he was an old F-111 pilot. And so we were dive bombing things and climbing back out and getting time over target and, you know, flying low, then climbing. We did not fly at the flight planned 11,000 feet and, you know, hold altitude at, at and cruise and get there in five hours. And so we came to the fuel stop and, and, uh, the uh, the we landed, but there was a, a C-130 in front of us, and uh, so or, or not the one in front of us. There was a C-130 that had also announced into the pattern with us, and and we look, you know, kind of 
did a mental check and it's like, uh, we're in front of him, even despite the fact that he's faster, you know, so we called and, and said, well, how about we take number one and you uh, go number two? And he said, yeah, that sounds great. So we uh, landed number one, we pull up to the fuel pump and we had 15 minutes of fuel left in there. And, and it was because of that we flew the mission totally different than it was flight planned. We mm-hmm. were in conversation and we actually went to the second fuel stop, not the first, because I looked at my calculations. It's like, oh, we can make it to the next one. And, uh, you know, that is, I'm so glad to have had that bad experience, so to speak, of, of freaking out when I see with a, the fuel, uh, pump read so close to the capacity of the tanks. Because I, you know, I always read those NTSB articles, and it's like, you know, pilot ran out of fuel. It's like those guys are idiots. I would never do that. <laughs> well, that's then, what it was for. That's what it was for me. Because my fuel emergency was just from uh, with my students uh, or uh, during the private training. I must do this cross country every day that whole week, and uh, it's just from Fort Worth to. Ardmore and back to Fort Worth, Ardmore in Oklahoma and uh, flew it every day. I know what the flight plan is supposed to look like. I know what the fuel burn is. I know where the, you know, so I just glanced at the flight plan. I know that they did it correctly or not because I've done it 20 times that week already. Right. Yeah, I've flown the flight 20 times that week. I know how much fuel we have when we get back. And by the time we were coming back and we we're crossing the Texas, Oklahoma border, um, I, every now and then I'll glance, you know, I'll glance over at all the engine instruments and, I caught that left fuel tank was empty. It was empty. And uh we only had less than half a tank on our right. And uh I knew right then something was bad. So I made sure that he had it completely leaned. And um, I got my E6B out and because uh, I knew that fuel gauge from flying that airplane all week. I knew that fuel gauge was actually correct. And I oh, did the uh, I did the I did the um calculations and I think I came with something of um having uh, uh, 10 gallons by the time we get back. and um, uh, But as we got there, uh, you know, getting in the pattern, there's a lot of training going on. I had to declare a fuel emergency to get into the airport. Um, so, yeah, we landed. The student stuck his, his measuring stick into the tank, and you just hear a tink because <laughs> there's Ooh. nothing in there. Yeah, that was pretty bad. I've had, I've had everything. I've had the – I've had alternator failures, uh Engine failures, uh, the C-130s actually, uh, the airport I used to depart out, um, is right next to Carswell, Carswell Joint Reserve Base. And they fly a bunch of C-130s out and I was on final coming into an airport and a flight of five C-130s were kind of in a, I don't know what you'd call it, a wall formation. Oh, but there, but there were three, there were three C-130s in formation and then there were two C-130s information right underneath them so they're kind of flying in a wall and they flew right across my final head on with me and i had nowhere to go you can't climb above five c-130s or i was actually getting ready to fly in between them i was bracing myself because i couldn't dip low oh, enough God. yeah i, I can't was, even imagine what the prop between the prop wash and i don't know what wing tip vortices are if they're descending then you, I, I assume you would have a lot of that they turned exactly they turned right in front of me and gave me no time to climb because I'm in a little Cessna. I can't climb. I, climb that. I don't have a climb right. rate. I couldn't descend fast enough because I'm already low to the ground because I'm on final. And um, I wouldn't have had time to turn around and plus they would have overtook me if I was turning around anyway. So I was expecting them to kind of break off around me. And 
I got the feeling that they were going to play chicken with me. I think they were actually enjoying it because at the very last second, they waited to the very last second to break off. I was so mad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think that, that well, it was in a, uh, oh, I, I think it was something I posted on a forum uh, and it was part of uh, uncontrolled airspace. I mentioned it uh, because I, when we were on that same trip to Van Nuys, we, you know, flew through some MOAs and, uh, and again, I was with a guy who had, you know, used to fly out of those MOAs at, you know, on the other side of, of the military aircraft. And, and his intention was really to kind of draw, uh, hoping we would see military aircraft. He said, cause you know, you fly into a MOA, they always find, they see you and then you become, it's, it's a game of chicken. And oh, they try, yeah. to, try to find you. And, and of course this F-16, uh, we'd been flying kind of really, really low actually. And, uh, when we finally got in contact with the uh, cowboy control, which is the, uh, it's really not, um, cowboy control is actually, out of Mountain Home Air Force Base, but you know they're not uh, ATC in a classic sense. But you can contact them, and then you're basically you're given a squawk code, and they follow you just like flight following, except through the MOA. And and they were uh, looking for us, but we were off. Tar- you know, weren't being seen because we were flying so low uh, in the canyons and stuff. And then um, when we showed up, of course, he was saying, well, we've been trying to reach you because uh, and we were finally at a thousand feet or so. And he was like, well, we've been trying to reach you. There's an F-16 in your area. And right then, right over the top of us, a 7G pole throws <laughs> his, put, puts his belly, you know, pulls away from us and, and exposes his belly. And my my co-pilot you know, was like, guns, guns, guns. We have the F-16. <laughs> <laughs> guns, guns. Yeah, uh, yeah. All the F, all the F-18s taken out of Carswell love to play with all the general aviation aircraft in the area and around Lake, uh, Lake Worth and Eagle Mountain Lake. They, uh, I had one skim inverted right underneath my Cessna and then then pulled straight up right in front of my airplane on purpose. Well, you know, the last trip I was on, uh, well, not the last one, because the last one was getting my plane, uh, a couple different things done to it that, and then getting it over to uh, uh middle fork aviation so that they could do the annual. But um, the, uh, I w- had a, a business reason to be in Las Vegas and thank the gods that uh, again, it, uh, I had VFR flight conditions flying there and, you know, I was there for a week uh, and basically kept a very, very open schedule uh, on the you know full weekend to get back uh, and whether, Sort of held out for us, so we ended up having to land, not come all the way to the destination because of weather. But, uh, but anyway, we uh, flew into uh, Las Vegas, and that was my first time really on my own in Class Bravo. So that was a lot of fun. And then uh, flew to Death Valley, and so got the altimeter reading, you know, 210 feet below sea level, and that was pretty novel. Uh, I was flying in there at night, so that's, that, I didn't, you know, I knew it was below sea level, but it still really freaked me out a little bit. Cognitive dissonance when uh, I am at short final, 200 feet b- above the runway, and the altimeter is reading, you know, 12 o'clock high. It was sort of, again, I knew it rationally, but it still caused me a little bit of, uh, I don't know what to say, other than just as like, wow, that's just really weird. I mean, it really weirded me <laughs> out a bit. Landed there. Then, then we flew over to um, the Chicken Strip uh, backcountry runway on in Death Valley. You know, and I watched your video on that. On that. Yeah, runway. yeah, and oh, th- and 
and I called Saline Moa to find out because I knew there was an active Moa in there, and it's right off the. They, and I'd been camping in there, and every time I camped in Saline Valley, man, they just rip through there at high speed. It's a it's a major training route for China Lake, as well as Edwards Air Force Base, and and so I. I called up and the guy said, well, uh, call me back at five and I'll tell you what's going to happen, what the training uh, schedules for tomorrow. And so I called him back at five and he said, okay, we've got 15 F-18s and a 737 uh, that will be in the area tomorrow. Uh, and man, they just kept flying over. Well, we, so we landed the chicken strip, went out and played at the hot springs and hung out with all the naked people there. I was, about to, I was about to say, <laughs> did you... Did you wear your swimsuit or your birthday suit? <laughs> I, you know, it was it was great. Uh, I walk in, you know, and there were there were several people still there or who were there, uh, and you know, I I'm not around a lot of nudists here in Idaho. Uh, <laughs> Idaho's already, not really known for their nudists, are they? <laughs> no, and so you know, I you know, see that everybody who's in the in the hot uh, in the hot spring is is au natural, and so. So I, I, you know, disrobe and I, I'm, I'm sort of about ready to quickly slip in, and not totally uncomfortable in my skin, but at the same time, not necessarily wanting to, to you know, advertise and flaunt, and you know, it's just it's a little different being naked in front of a, a group of people. I haven't done that in a long time. No, uh, no, really, no, really need to show off. Right. So I'm about ready to kind of quickly slip into the water, and immediately this like, oh, you know, retired age, 65 year old. Uh, an attractive German woman uh, hops up and, and looks at me and says, would you like a tour? <laughs> and, uh, and, and so it's like, uh, sure. And it was really pretty cool because she then it's kind of a, I even go so far as to say it's almost a ritual that people who are new to that hot spring, uh, they basically want you to know the ethics of, you know, here's where you go take a shower before you get into the hot springs. And here's, you know, here's where we smash our aluminum cans, and that's what funds the upkeep of, you know, toilet paper, et cetera, at the campground. And and it was, I mean, they really loved the place, and that came across in the tour. And the tour really was, was as much really to keep me or to basically put me in the nose so that I knew not the rules but had the, the same honor and respect they had uh, for the place. And, and it was so so worth it. But I got a bit, admit, a little bit disconcerting running around, walking naked behind somebody who you've never met before and getting the <laughs> tour. But I had a great conversation with she and her husband. And, and then, a, 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 not going to say a large group of people, but quite a few people were there. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing set of hot springs. Uh, at the same time, there's a, enough pools in that area. You can uh, uh, go to pools and be by yourself or pools where you're just there with another set of people or, or the larger pool that uh, depending on the time of day, we had it to ourselves for a while. And then we had a group of, you know, six or seven. In fact, there was a guy there uh, who was a King air pilot and uh, said he, and another guy who was a pilot and said he, after seeing us land, uh, walked the runway to go see what it was like. It's, it's, it's truly a magical place. And, uh, Probably the amazing thing about it is that it's it's you have to really want to be there if, just to drive it because it's four hours of washboards pretty much once you leave the highway from the middle of nowhere. So you know you're that's, near. That's what I was going to ask you is uh, because in your video it looked like it was just out in the middle of nowhere. I didn't see any roads near it or anything. So I was kind of going to ask you is the majority of the patrons there is are they are they pilots flying into that? Uh, no, field? you know. Uh, in fact, that you know that we. 
we were the 39th plane this year uh, that signed the register. And I assume that just about everybody who flies in there would, would sign the register. Uh, and, and that, by the way, the video is on YouTube. I posted that and you can put that in your show notes if you want. But the, uh, uh, no, there's, it doesn't get a huge amount of air traffic and, I, and it's a pretty committing, uh, uh, landing strip because it, it, it lands uphill, which isn't such a big deal, but it's, uh, 1400 feet long. And so it's a pretty short field. Although the uphill effectively gives you a longer distance because gravity is giving you an assist on slowing you down because you're landing uphill. So that 1400 feet, I don't know what you, I don't know what the conversion would be, but you, you definitely get a, a bump from it by the fact that you're, but there's no go round. The, the, in the photos, it doesn't really, you can't really tell how substantial that rising terrain is that's out in front of the airplane. But when you're, when you're there and you circle the, the runway, you definitely get a sense that that's definitely right, some seriously rising terrain and, and a go round really isn't an option, uh, unless you had just a huge, if you had a Husky or a Super Cub or something that, that really just gets off the ground quickly. You might be able to do it, but I think it's better, say, always safer to consider that on a runway like that, that you don't have a go around. But, but yeah, you know, for me, it was an hour from Las Vegas to get to that, uh, or not Las Vegas, an hour from Furnace Creek or less. Uh, hour from Las Vegas to Furnace Creek and then from Furnace Creek over to the chicken strip was, uh, uh less than an hour. And, uh, and just, a, like I said, it's a magical place and it's easy to get into by plane. And boy, it, you really have to work to get there by a car. But, you know, I think that's one of the things that I'm, again, coming back to the airplane and purchasing an airplane, I'm really glad I ended up with the, the 182. It really uh, meets my missions because I do a lot of backcountry flying and I fly over, even if I don't choose to land my uh, my business commute between Idaho Falls and Richland, Washington. Uh, if I go direct, which is the fastest way, it's a 350 nautical mile route uh, one way. And there really just aren't very many. If you go direct, GPS direct, there just aren't very many runways or airstrips that are your outs on that route. Uh, and most of them are Forest Service and or totally just really backcountry strips, uh, Upper Loon Creek. And uh, then, well, from Ida- between Idaho Falls, you have a, a one or two strips. There's a little dirt strip at Howe. Uh, Mud Lake is another little short uh agricultural strip that's an out and then uh chalice is is one although there's a there's a guy who's got a private strip i think he developed the winglets on on boeings and uh he has a little piece of paradise he bought a ranch and built a runway that he flies a cj or some kind into uh oh nice i know yeah i i I fly (laughs) over it all the time and i just got the story from uh when I was uh, delivering my plane for the annual, it's like, I, I've always seen this runway. It's marked as private on, uh, and, but it's a substantial runway and it, and it, it's like, what the heck is it? And, and that's what it turns out. It's a guy who, uh, does that. And so he built it big enough to handle, uh, a Boeing to come in, in the event that his buddies, uh, want to fly in. That sounds like, uh, there's an airfield near where I, uh, fly in and out of, um, it's called, uh, Copeland Field. Uh, I think after the uh, TV evangelist, it's a it's a three strip runway paved that you can bring in Boeing jets in on. And his house is right there at the end of one of the runways and his uh, church is there on the end of the other. And oh, it's man. right. It's right on uh, Eagle Mountain Lake. 
And so it has this nice view over the lake. And it's um, he keeps it private, but he paid the money to make it look public on the sectional. So if you you have airplanes, they'll come in, and as they come in, they'll tell you to go around, or you'll be charged a substantial fee. And oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, yeah, this one's listed as a private. In fact, it's on the sectional's May M A Y, I believe, as as I recall. I can't, but uh, but yeah, flying over uh, from Idaho Falls to Richland, there's there's I'm glad I fly backcountry and have landed those strips because they're uh, they're my only outs across uh, you know good two hours of flight. All I have is gravel or gravel, dirt or less uh, in buried inside canyons and uh, and you really it, it, you they're places you wouldn't go without mountain flying training just because as much if for if for no other reason it's just to learn the approach for a particular strip because. Uh, the points of where you'd turn base and final, sometimes you, uh, like upper loon, you know, if you do a, a standard pattern, uh, on downwind, you, you go literally, you're, you're a thousand feet above the airport or airstrip, but you're at treetop level above this one cliff. Uh, and then you turn behind the cliff and turn base, and now you can't even see the runway that you're going down or that you're aiming for. And then when you turn final, which basically is to get line up with the canyon, uh, and you're you're now right next to this just monolithic granite cliff uh, that just dwarfs an airplane. Uh, and, and I on that uh, website I put up, I put a video of a uh, of a 206 taking off and 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 my plane at that run at that airstrip upper loon. Uh, but you know the. Just learning how to land it, you know, learning what the what the weird terrain features for that particular airstrip are. That that's half the battle of the the, the mountain flying course is learning specific airstrips and their approaches. How did you get hooked up with Roger as a partner? Well, hang, a combination hangar flying, and uh, we work together in uh, in business. He he works for one of a uh, company that is a client of mine, and so I did a video. Uh, of a project Roger was working on, and and so I was invited to their Christmas party, and uh, so I go show up at the Christmas party, and uh, you know I, I I knew Roger, so I went over and you know grabbed my beer and saddled up next to him, and we were talking, and at that point I'd gotten back into my uh, I'm not sure if I was already flying again or if I was committed to I think I was at that point already back into flying, so. At that point, Roger's like, "Well, I'm a pilot," and so we spent an entire evening hangar flying, basically at, at this Christmas party, which was a wonderful way to spend a Christmas party. Uh, with a, and so, so that really was what, where I got the first introduction to Roger, and then, uh, you know, he clearly was in the market for a plane, and. I'm kind of an organizer type person, so I, I immediately started. Well, let's, you know, the guy who I was, who got me back into flying, I had him hooked up and a couple other people hooked up. And then I got him, you know, hooked up to, hey, let's, you know, are you willing to put $3,000 in a kitty so we can, when we, if we find a plane, we can make a down payment, you know, make an offer and, and move forward. And so I kind of got uh, that rolling and I set up an LLC for all that. Uh, and, uh, so, so basically, Roger was one of the four or five people that I had, you know, lined up to help offset my costs, 
uh, and make it possible to own a plane. And and again, you know, through the deals, then the economy crashed and people started bailing and uh, it was just ended up just being Roger and me uh, left really is still interested. And uh, and the combination between Roger and me ended up being the most still interested. But then the other thing is I started realizing uh, if I get a plane, I really don't want to share it with too many people. <laughs> And, and, and now that I've, I've used it so much for business, I, I actually have to be very careful to make sure I don't, uh, use the plane so much that Roger doesn't have access to it. So, you know, we're working through those in terms of our bylaws. It's still good to have a good set of rules for the, for the club, the, the group, uh, and then, and also just open lines of communication. Uh, I think it helps that both Roger and I are the same ilk in that, we would rather uh, put ourselves out to put the other person, you know, to make the other person whole. Uh, you know, as long as both of you are that way, that's good. I think it would be bad if you had two of you that way and one guy who's just a, you know, uh, take no prisoners. Well, fine, and then I'll use the, you know, but but no, that 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 was what what connected me with Roger was basically. Uh, through business and then plane shopping. We we spend a lot of time emailing, what do you think of this plane? What do you think of this plane? We'd go to go to the bar and hangar fly and and pick our short list of top the top 10 planes on the market at the time that we thought we would want and then you know, well, no, I don't like that one and so I'd scratch it off my list and well, I'm not really into that one and he'd scratch it off his list and so it was this constant uh narrowing and narrowing of of planes. Uh, and of course, the, the when uh, 225 Mike uh, came up on the market, uh, Roger was the first person I called. And after, you know, I, I already knew I needed to make an offer quickly. Uh, so, like I said, I, I found the plane at two in the morning. I was on the phone with the broker at 6 a.m. Uh, I was offering money down to hold it while I talked to my partner. I called Roger and he was like, well, check it out. And, uh, it sounds like, you know, again, we had done enough homework, um, that we knew, I think we knew every plane on the market, uh, between barnstormers and controller and ASO and trade a plane. You know, we knew every plane that was, that matched our criteria that was available. Uh, and so when this one came up, uh, and, and again, came up, at a much higher price to performance ratio than any of our short list. Uh, you know, it was, again, it was, came down to, so Roger, are you in? And, uh, and thank God he was because, because <laughs> uh, like I said, I, I feel bad about for the pilot who let this plane go because of the economy. But um, I definitely feel like I, I, I got a fantastic plane. In fact, I, I think of all the, one of the take home messages for people who are listening to the podcast really is that uh it's still a great buyer's market and uh you look out there 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 are planes that I was Roger and I were looking at that are still out there on the market uh the prices have come down on some of those and uh you know those sellers are probably more motivated now than they were when they put those planes out uh you know a year ago what did you do to uh set up the the LLC and the governance of the the, the organization and, and the bylaws and that sort of thing. You know, steal, steal, steal. <laughs> uh, you know, a, a couple things. One, one is, 
I've set up corporations before, so I, I fortunately am not intimidated by that. And it's, it's, it's less difficult than, than people think it is, I think. Uh, it certainly is easy in Idaho. Uh, basically, I fill out a one-page form, uh, sign it, send it off uh, with some bylaws, and I've got an L- and, a, and a check for a hundred bucks, and I've got an LLC. And uh, I set up an LLC as a single-person LLC originally because I didn't know who else would be in with me. And then we had to do an amendment to our bylaws or amendment to the LLC charter to uh, add a. a make it a multi-owner or multi-party LLC. And then we did that while we were as part of the closing process. Uh, you know, and Steve Tupper may take umbrage with this, but I don't think you need a lawyer. I did call Steve, Tup- Steve Tupper at, at, uh, just to, to shoot the breeze and, and talk about, you know, the ins and outs. Plus, I listened to his podcasts. In fact, I recommend people listen to his podcast about the difference between an LLC, all the different ways you can own an airplane. There's a uh, back in uh, Airspeed Archives. Uh, you'll find a nice, nice tutorial from Tupper on uh, on the ins and outs. And that was very informative and helpful. Uh, so basically set set it up and then. Then when it became, it was really just a piece of vaporware, so to speak, at first. It was just a, a corporation for the purpose of, so I would have the have one on the books if I and get financing approved for, uh, and then ultimately when it came down to to getting a plane, then it's like, well, okay, to get the financing, you need to send off your uh, articles of incorporation and your bylaws, and that's where it's a it's a you know, come to Jesus moment where you really need to make sure you, at that point you really do have bylaws you think will work between you and your respective members. And notice I use the term members, not partners. That's basic, basically from Steve Tupper saying, you know, be careful what, how you, the language you choose. Uh, and if you set up an LLC, then the people who are in the LLC are members. Uh, partnerships is a different animal, but, um, Basically, Roger and I spent a lot of time drinking beer, talking through provisions, searching the Internet for examples, uh, basically cutting and pasting examples of LLC or of bylaws, et cetera, uh, that we liked, uh, and then basically bounced them back and forth uh, till we had the language we liked that we thought represented what we wanted out of. And, and really it was, uh, and once we had that, uh, and we sent that off with the financing and they said, yep, that looks like a legitimate LLC and we'll give you the money. And, uh, and that, now we're locked in with those, those words and those bylaws, again, a lot of them, the, the words and stuff, I really didn't, I'm not going to say I didn't think about them. Uh, they didn't apply because they were all theoretical. And then of course, when we, we have to pay for something like that, that spinner with the crack, uh, boy, it's like, oh yeah, that's why that, that's what, we know exactly how this is going to flow through the money and how the money is going to get distributed and how the maintenance is going to be handled. Uh, it was beautiful to have a, a template that actually worked. And, uh, you know, I think we can every year we're going to look, open that up and look at it and say, you know, are these words still honoring what, what we want them to? Or are they doing what we, we, you know, for us, are they protecting both of our respective interests? Uh, and if so, if if so, then leave it the same. And if not, then again, with enough beer, we'll solve the problem. 
Now, throughout this adventure, you've also done some writing to document your experiences. Uh, did you want to talk about that at all? I, I got to put in a plug for uh, uh, Aviation Safety Magazine, Jeb, Jeb Burnside. In fact, that's one of the things we didn't cover is the fact that I called him and, and got a lot of sage advice from Jeb, both uh, on the uh, – safety issues of picking up an airplane and and he he definitely uh gave me a number of of specific things to consider uh when I was doing my pre-flight planning and then uh afterwards obviously was uh gracious enough to accept an article from uh, somebody who'd never published in aviation safety so he uh took my article and and put it on online or put it in the magazine and I appreciate that as well but probably more than the article, uh, more than anything else, I really uh, appreciate his, his counsel uh, in advance of the trip. There are a lot of factors that I thought about um, more by having talked to him. And I think that really for anybody buying an airplane, picking up a new airplane or flying in an airplane you're unfamiliar with, the value of hangar flying with people who are more experienced than you are is is uh, you cannot underestimate that value. And it's a lot of fun, too. Yeah, you know, and, and that's the other thing. I, that's, I, I, there's there's a huge value in it, and then the other thing is, yeah, it, it's a chance, it's an excuse to drink beer, it's an excuse to uh, talk about flying, it's an excuse to talk about planes, and uh, and even if you don't get to fly, hangar flying is always fun. Uh, in your article, you're talking about flying your uh, 182 from Colorado to Idaho, and um, the risk factors involved in that, especially for someone who's unfamiliar with the airplane. And uh, uh, those risk factors you list in the article are unfamiliarity, uh, recent maintenance, uh, novelty of the situation, and get their itis. And uh, I was just wanting to touch base on a little bit of these, um, starting with unfamiliarity. Uh, you were talking about, uh, I like how you wrote that you have your first flight moments listed in the article. And uh, uh, one of them is about not, not trusting the POH really because of you had some uh, something customized to the aircraft. Well, you know, it, it, it absolutely, you know, the one of the things that, uh, again, I'd flown with the rental fleet, uh, a variety of different airplanes and it had several times where I experienced, uh, you know, looking for switches, you know, the plane, I always flew the same, tried to fly the same plane every time or rent the same plane. And there's a reason I, I felt more comfortable in the plane that I had the most hours in. And um, the other planes, uh, some of them in the fleet, it's like, uh, you know, I'm checked out in it because we had several different 172s, but I hadn't flown all of them. But they're, of course, willing to let me fly any one of them. Uh, and I had the, the one I'm used to flying was unavailable, and I, I went to a different one and I spent, you know, I fired it up, everything is looking good. I'm, I'm looking at everything, and I can't find the avionics switch to turn on the radios uh, to call into ground. And it, I, I sat there, and I sat there, and I'm burning Hobbs time. And that really was kind of the first introduction of the fact that, boy, when you're unfamiliar with an airplane, you know, I can get it started. I know how it flies. I know the V speeds. I know the emergency procedures, other than I don't know where all the, all the buttons, switches, and knobs are. Uh, and that really was what was the first wake-up call that kind of gave me inspiration for, to write the article, really. Uh, so so that experience made me thinking when I, I'm heading off to pick up this plane, it's like, I don't know anything about – I mean, I've flown a 182, but the 182 I flew uh, out of the fleet was a 1973, I think. Uh, totally different airplane than the one I fly, the 1960. Totally different. 
Uh, I've got a, I've got manual flaps. And when I was plane shopping, one of the planes I looked at was a 1962, uh, 182, and it has a flap switch that if you push it down, you have to hold that le- flap lever down. And as long as it's being held down, the flaps are continuing to engage. But it's not like most of the airplanes I fly, where if you, uh, the, the previous Cessnas I flew that had those electronic flaps, they all had presets. You'd just reach over there and push it to 10 degrees or 12 degrees or 20 degrees or 30. And as soon as you move the, the flap in, uh, button or the switch into position, then the flaps would move until they were engaged. Whereas that 1962, no, you actually have to hold it. The whole time the flaps are engaging or disengaging. And really, uh, when I was doing a, a checkout of, of the 62 version that we didn't buy, uh, it dawned, or again, uh, the guy who is my, both my pre-flight mechanic as, as well as he's a CFI and an excellent uh, CFI with a lot of experience in 182s. And he was like, Oh man, that'll get you in so much trouble if you yeah. reach over to that thing and think you're, you've got to do a go around you pop push in full throttle you know you're if you do a go around usually it means you want to get out of a bad situation quickly and if you reach over there and touch that flap button and think those flaps are coming out and all you did was basically engage the motor and then it quickly shut off as soon as you release pressure uh you're, you're now doing a go around with full flaps and that is not a good situation to be in there are lots of idiosyncrasies of different airplanes and that was in doing the pre-flight inspe- or pre-buy inspection on a 1962, I learned, wow, there's a big difference between a 62 and a 73. And then, of course, the, the the beauty in some respects, in fact, that's one of the, I think, one of the wonderful attributes of the 60 uh, is its manual flaps. There, you know, there's very little mechanical that will go wrong because it's 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 you and and Armstrong, and it's leverage that uh is 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 what engages the flaps and so there's mechanically there's less to go wrong and therefore it's cheaper to maintain but again there's a big distinction between manual flaps that 1962 where there's a switch that engages the only when you're pressing it and then the 73 where you know it has detents that you just put put it into position and the flaps automatically move so knowing knowing um the differences between the different models uh, and I think that was part of in our homework after we had purchased the plane. It's like, well, you know, so what's different about this plane versus the other plane, you know, the, the 19 or the 182 that I've been flying? What what makes this how is this going to fly differently? You know, what my favorite answer was, well, the 1959s, 58s and 60 model have the straight back and they're a lighter, uh, slightly narrower airframe. Uh, but lighter by far, and so they fly faster than any of the other 182 models. And, boy, I've, that's the one attribute of the plane I end up buying that I still love, the fact that I get 140 knots true. I, I flight plan 130 knots, and that it makes me smile every time uh, getting having a plane that goes fast. Uh, but, but again, it's a different sight picture out the, the cockpit because the, the, the wheel gear is – uh, it's got a narrow rear wheel, narrower wheel base, which puts the airplane up a little bit higher, which is good for backcountry. It means my props up higher, but also means when you touch down, your, your sight picture is different than what it was in the other 182 I flew. Uh, so there's, there's lots of little nuances. And, and again, hangar flying was, is a huge safety benefit because 
man, there are things that I would not have thought about that I learned from people who had experience in in the variety of 182s, including the one that I bought, and therefore just chatting about, hey, I got, you know, I'm, I'm going to go pick up a plane that is a 182. Tell me about, you know, it's like, well, what year? And oh, okay, so that's got the manual flaps. You know, hangar flying was, I think, probably the, one of the best safety factors I had going for me. I know, I think I know, you know, that when it comes to novelties, the one of the things that specifically we had to think about was the fact that uh, I had flown a Garmin 430 once and this plane had one. Boy, I spent an awful lot of time trying to figure that sucker out. And, but at the same time, it takes a while to really get your, the hang of a Garmin 430 if you've never flown one before or only have had limited experience. And definitely we, Roger and I had limited experience. So the novelty of wanting to, you know, a 430 is a very powerful uh, avionics platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it can do an awful lot of stuff, but you don't need to make it run through all those paces on the first flight. And you would spend an awful lot of time with your head in the cockpit rather than out of the cockpit when you're flying VFR. So Roger and I right away, you know, in our discussions of when we go to pick up the airplane, we're going to have two of us flying back in it with the specific reasoning that uh, one of us is going to run the radios. And that way the radios don't become a distraction, you know, aviate, navigate and communicate. The guy who's in the left seat needs to be aviating. And uh, the other guy can be learning how the radios work and making sure that, you know, and taking care of things on frequency. And uh, that was a division of labor we decided, as well as having the safety pilot, to make sure novelty didn't end up, you know, if if one of us flew back solo in that plane, uh, again, you know, you, you, you'd be hard-pressed not to want to kind of start playing with that Garmin 430, but, you know, maybe the first flight on a cross country isn't the time to try to run it through its paces. Now, are you instrument rated? I'm not. I, uh, that's on my list. In fact, Stuart, I envy you, uh, when you, you sent me that email of your, uh, recent trip to, uh, 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 the hill country, Fredericksburg, was it? Right. Yeah. I, I, I really long to have that instrument rating. It's one, it's definitely the next thing I've got to do. It was harder for me than the private because um, it's it's just sensory overload and sensory deprivation all at the same time. Right. <laughs> uh, so it, it's it's learning how to multitask on a lot of different dimensions that you're not used to. Uh, and it's, it's totally foreign to the whole VFR thought of keeping your head out of the cockpit. Well, this is you only have the cockpit. Instrument flying is a completely different way to fly the airplane. And so it, you're basically day one student all over again and all your past experiences don't really mean anything anymore <laughs> once you once you start your instrument flying. Well, you know, what's funny is that part of what uh, cinched the deal on buying an airplane. In fact, uh, you know, earlier we were talking about how did the decision come to buy. And uh, I uh, in the rental fleet, one of the things about a rental fleet is, you know, they're they're maintained to the level they need to be to stay in the fleet uh, and to stay legal. and we had squawked the uh, directional gyro uh, on and uh, or the attitude indicator for this plane a lot that it, it just, you know, the, the attitude gyro was always uh, just not quite right. And it would take a while to you know center itself. And then I was coming back. I was already commuting back and forth uh, to uh, from Richland to Idaho Falls. 
with the rental plane. And again, I fly over the wilderness, so it's vacant terrain. I had Cavu weather, so it was uh, nice and clear. And, uh, so I didn't have any problems, even though it's night. And I, but I didn't have a, a, a good moon that night. Uh, and I'm flying home, night, VFR, and my my gyro fails. Or it, it basically, I shouldn't say it failed. It just said I was in a 45 degree bank when I wasn't. Oh, that's that's failure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, all right. So it's like I can no longer. And so, I, you know, fortunately, my course heading, the heading gyro was fine, so I could stare at that one. And essentially, you really are flying it. And even though it really is VFR legally by definition, I had visual references. I could see stars and I could see mountains. But I'm flying over the wilderness. There are no city lights. There is nothing to establish a horizon other than mountains. Uh, and uh, that was not a comfortable situation to be in. Fortunately, the, again, pilotage uh, and and paying attention to the other instruments and having a GPS on board that was still operable. So there are a lot of things that backed me up that kept me going in the direction I needed to go. But when you lose outside references and have that gyro fail, you know, that was one of those things where I was very glad I was in a plane that I was familiar with. It was the rental plane I flew the most. And therefore, I knew all, you know, knew how to make the the, the GPS work and knew where everything else was. So even though I lost one instrument to my scan, uh, I had high familiarity. And, and that's, again, one of the reasons you purchase a plane is so that you can get to know one plane really, really well. Uh, but when you first purchase it, it's the one plane you don't don't know bupkis about so it's that contradiction between you know your reason you want to own a plane is so that you can get to know it really really well so you're safer but when you go when you first your first hours in your new plane are the hours where you don't know any of it you know if something something happens to fail on the you know your first hundred hours in your new plane you don't know it that well Again, that was that was part of the inspiration for the article because it was that that contradiction of the reason you want to buy and own is so that you can fly one plane and really get to know it forward and backwards and feel very safe in it. And at the same time, when you go pick it up, you realize you are well. And another inspiration for the article is the fact that uh, we were literally the week we were closing on the plane, a guy from Salt Lake City, which is four hours from here, uh, bought a plane in Boise. Flew, had a buddy of his fly him up to pick it up the plane, uh, and it was Comanche, which he was a really low time pilot, and that's a lot of airplane to, to be buying. So he bought a plane that had a high performance for a guy with, uh, under 100 hours. Um, don't know what the checkout was, but, uh, he, uh, he augured in the wings, the wings fell off the plane before it even crashed. So he overstressed the plane somehow. And that's a pretty robust airplane. Uh, and, and I felt, I mean, I, I was like, everyone was saying, you know, man, you're buying a plane. You know, you got to be careful when you go pick that thing up because there was a guy right there as a classic example of somebody who's walks in, pick, flies out to pick up his airplane and on the plane trip home and the first flight in his new airplane, he dies. So it really uh, was a wake up call. Yikes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so it, it it always hurts when you hear something like that. Oh, I know. I, I it's like, oh man, the tragedy. It sounds like you've had quite an opportunity to uh, do some exploring and have some adventures in the short time you've owned the 182. 
I have the, uh, a perfect platform for exploring, and I have definitely taken full advantage of it. I've seen folks off at Indian Creek on our Middle Fork River trip, um, done a lot of fly fishing, and I, I did a little trip to a little wilderness runway called Minum in Oregon. And then, uh, again, that last trip I did to uh, Saline Valley and uh, landed on the Ibex Hard Pan, which is a, just a dry lake bed. It's just been a, just a whole bunch of adventures that, you know, I wouldn't have those if I didn't own an airplane. Well, I'm jealous for one. Oh, man, me too. <laughs> well, Mike, we'd like to thank you for being with us and, uh, and being able to live vicariously through you. Well, hey, thanks for inviting me. And um, and hopefully uh, anybody out there who uh, is thinking about an airplane, the one thing I can definitely say is even though I feel a little bit guilty about having, uh, you know, somebody else's dream uh, was taken away from them by the economy, uh, the reality is, uh, there are a lot of great bargains on airplanes right now, and the market is recovering. Uh, but at this point, I think the the used airplane market is going to lag the recovery of the main economy. So there's an opportunity to really get some great deals. So if you feel like your future is, is brightening up, uh, now is an excellent time to buy an airplane because uh, I don't think the deals could get any better in terms of, finding a huge amount of airplane for a small amount of money. Uh, so, I mean, if, if your finances are in any way secure uh, where you can justify buying an airplane, I, I don't think you could find a better time. Thank you for listening to the Pilot's Journey podcast. We'd love to hear your questions, suggestions, or experiences. And you can reach us at our website, www.pilotsjourneypodcast.com. Or you can leave us voicemail at 469-277-2359. You can also follow me as Pilot Stu, that's S-T-U, on Twitter or MyTransponder.com. And you can reach me on Twitter or MyTransponder as C-F-I Stu, S-T-E-W. And until next time, go fly and enjoy the journey. Please note that this podcast is intended for informational and entertainment purposes only. Please consult your own qualified flight instructor before attempting anything discussed in this podcast. Copyright 2009, Fully Stewed Productions.